Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me into uh, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17, we're going to read the beginning of 17, and then we're going to skip over and read the beginning of 18. We're going to read chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip over and read chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If you have Revelation 17, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the great wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven and having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornications with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Sins the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. 
Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, this is your word and we are your people. And we've gathered here this morning to sit under the authority of your word and, and hear what it has to say to us. So, Father, would you speak through your word this morning and let us have ears to hear. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, just if you're wondering why we were in Zechariah, then we went to Genesis last week. Now we're in Revelation. As I mentioned last week that we need to understand the symbolism of Babylon within the book of Zechariah. This, is, you know, this isn't just a random country. This isn't just a random nation that decided to pick a fight with Israel. Now God's judging Babylon. That's, that's not how this works. It's not how any of this works, as my favorite commercial likes to say. Um, Babylon has a history. It has a significant history throughout the Bible. And so what we've been doing is we've been taking a detour away from Zechariah so that we can look at the significance of Babylon in biblical history. Uh, so last week we looked at Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and we talked about the beginnings of Babylon. Now we are going into the book of Revelation to see the ending of Babylon. And like I said, this is important because we need to see the, the, the symbolic nature of Babylon all throughout Scripture. Um, and so we're looking at this text as, as the end of Babylon. And there's two kinds of people whenever it comes to the book of Revelation. There's two kinds of people whenever the pastor announces he's going to preach through the book of Revelation or, or preach from Revelation that morning. There's two kinds of people. The first kind of person says, oh great, the book of Revelation. Here we, you know, whatever. The second kind of person says, oh boy, the book of Revelation. Because they're ready to pull out their charts and graphs and get their John Hagee books out and talk about what, why what's going on in the Middle East is, you know, biblical prophecy or whatever. I am neither one of those people. Um, matter of fact, while I don't claim to understand the book of Revelation, because it is quite a hard book to understand, I also think that we make understanding the book of Revelation much harder than it has to be because we are, we are bombarded, culturally speaking, here in America, we are bombarded with, with televangelists who make it out like you've got to read today's newspaper and find out what's going on in the Middle East to, and relate all this to biblical prophecy, and you've got to look for the Jews building the third temple and all that, and, it's, and I don't think any of that's necessary. I don't think any of that's necessary because, because John had this vision in the context of, of Christian persecution in the first century. And so you're not going to understand the book of Revelation unless you understand historically what was going on then um, and how it applies now. And so we're in Revelation. And, and the thing about Revelation is, is it's not all that big and scary. It's, it's not really all that big and scary. As long as we keep Revelation at a distance, it's big and scary. But if we read it and confront it head on, then then what we find is that while there may be differing opinions on what the symbols mean, is it's not really all that daunting, especially when you see it as one cohesive unit. So the, the first clue in that is at the beginning of the book of Revelation, in, way back in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, um, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So notice the, the first notice the, the second word in Revelation chapter one, verse one. The second word there is revelation, singular. It's not revelations, plural. 
Uh, matter of fact, if, if I ever get the opportunity to teach an eschatology class on a, on a biblical college level, um, I'm going to fail any student who refers to Revelation as Revelations. Because, any, because, the, because this whole book is one solid revelation. Granted, it takes place in pieces. It takes place in, in different acts, if you were referring to it as a theatrical movie. But it's one story. It's one cohesive unit. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's another thing. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells you what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's not about what's going on in the Middle East. It's, it's not about all these, it's not about a timeline. It's, it's about Jesus. And it's about how Jesus overcomes the oppression of the world against his people. And so, uh, like I said, Revelation is big and scary as long as we keep it at a distance. But if we read it and we confront it head on, then we find that it's a lot less daunting than what we initially thought it was. And, uh, and of course, what makes it harder is, is people who think they know what they're talking about whenever they try to write commentaries on Revelation. Not, not that all commentaries on Revelation are bad, because not all are, but some commentaries are just horrible, um, which is what G.K. Chesterton essentially said in his book on Orthodoxy. He said that... Uh, St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> so back, so just, uh, of course, by way of review again, back in Zechariah chapter 5, which we've been going through the book of Zechariah lately, back in Zechariah 5, 5 through 11, we saw Zechariah's seventh vision. Uh, and by the way, just in my opinion, I think the book of Zechariah is just a little harder to interpret than, than the book of Revelation. But again, that's just my opinion. Um, back in Zechariah chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, we saw Zechariah's seventh vision about a woman who gets thrown into a basket and delivered into the land of Shinar, which, of course, we learned last week, and of course, we learned the week before that, that Shinar is basically a capital city within Babylon. So, so, so this woman gets thrown in a basket in Zechariah 5, 5 through 11, gets taken to Babylon, and, the, and Zechariah asks the angel, well, where's, where are they taking that woman in the basket? And the angel says to Zechariah, well, they're going to go build a house for her in the land of Shinar. And what we find is that that house, it's a, it's a, it's a house of worship, it's a temple. And that woman in the basket, of course, represents wickedness and iniquity. And so what that angel is saying is that all of that sin, all of that iniquity of Israel is going to get taken symbolically back to Babylon, where Babylon is going to worship that iniquity. And so iniquity, and so when iniquity gets worshipped in a culture, it begins to define that culture, which is what we see all throughout Scripture. So Babylon, Babylon esteems, Babylon esteems wickedness, Babylon esteems iniquity, Babylon esteems sin, and we know that because, because one of their first, one of the things that, that caused the, their, their tower to, to come tumbling down was that they wanted, to re, they wanted to build a tower that reached the heavens so that they could essentially claim to be gods. And so they wanted to overthrow God, which of course where sin comes from. All sin comes from a psychological, granted it's, it's, an, it's a subconscious desire, all sin comes from a subconscious desire to overthrow God. Because what happens is we, we take God out of the driver's seat of our lives, we put ourselves in the driver's seat, we think we know better than God, which is why we go against God's will, and that's where sin comes from. And repentance is saying, God, I acknowledge that I've messed this up. 
I acknowledge that my sin can take me nowhere, and I need Jesus. That's repentance. And so, and so because that society, because Babylon was born out of a desire to overthrow God, they made the people of God their target. Because, because of Israel's sin, God allowed Babylon to take them into captivity for almost 70 years, but because God will never completely abandon his people, he caused Babylon to allow the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the walls and the culture. But like their ancestors who escaped Egypt and followed Moses in the wilderness, they complained, they made excuses, and they needed a little motivation to actually do what God had told them to do and, God, and what God had brought them back to do. They had come out of Babylon, but Babylon had not come out of them. Again, that's a recurring theme. And what we find, unfortunately, is that Babylonian captivity is far more than simply being confined in a geographic location called Babylon. Babylonian captivity goes all the way to the heart because they might have been, they might have been chained up. They might have been slaves in Babylon. They might have been exiles in Babylon, but their hearts were exiled from God. And so... Being released from Babylonian captivity didn't do them a whole lot of good as long as their hearts were far from God. And what we need to understand about what Revelation shows us is that Babylon goes, goes far beyond a bygone Mesopotamian nation of yesteryear. Babylon is a spirit. And in Revelation, God evokes the imagery of Babylon to show John uh, that, that Babylon lives on in the Roman Empire under which he and many other Christ followers are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus as the true and living king. The way Sam Storms frames this, is, I think, is helpful. Sam Storms tells us, he said, Babylon refers to any nation, such as North Korea, any social organization, such as Planned Parenthood, any political movement, such as communism under Lenin or Stalin, or the pornography film industry, or false religions such as Islam that deny Jesus Christ as God incarnate and opposes the teachings of God's word as revealed in the Bible. Babylon cannot be limited to any one individual or institution or nation or city. You can't point to any one location or country on the globe and say that alone is Babylon. You can't confine Babylon with any particular geographical or territorial boundaries. Babylon is found, pay attention to this, Babylon is found wherever and whenever there is satanically inspired deception and idolatry. Babylon is the symbol of all worldly entrenched opposition to Jesus Christ. In ancient times, Babylon was Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Nineveh, and Rome. More recently, Babylon is Nazi Germany, China under Mao Zedong, so the Soviet Union under Stalin, North Korea and Iran, and even the United States, to the degree that our own country resists the kingdom of Christ. And so I want us to see three things about these verses in Revelation 17 and 18, but we're only going to get to the first point this morning. Because as I was studying, I, as I was studying, my, my initial plan was to just take a one-week detour and cover what Babylon is in one sermon, be done with it, and go back to Zechariah. As I kept doing research and kept writing, I realized that my introduction to this sermon was turning into another sermon. So I, I, that's what I covered last week, and then I thought, okay, well, I'll just wrap it up this week, and then I kept studying, and I kept coming up with more material, and I thought, well, maybe there's more to this. And so we're going we're gonna to be here this week, and then we're going to finish our, our detour into Babylon next week. 
And so we're so what we're going to see over the next two weeks is how Babylon imitates the bride of Christ. We're going to see how the beast that that the that the great whore of Babylon rides on imitates the bride of Christ. And then we're going to see the call to leave Babylon and come to Christ. And of course, we're, and of course, what we see throughout this is we see that this is the this is the final this is the final installment. Installment's not the right word. It's it's the manifestation. There we go. It's this is this in Revelation 17 and 18 is the final manifestation of this pattern that keeps recurring over and over again in Scripture, and that pattern is that. That pattern is that God set, God establishes what is good and right in the world. Satan comes along and tries to distort it and tempt God's people away from what is good and right. And that pattern keeps continuing all throughout Scripture. And that pattern is going to keep continuing all throughout time until Jesus comes back. God establishes the rule of what is good, holy, and true and says, this is, this is my covenant, live by it. Then Satan comes along, he comes up with an imitation, he comes up with a cheap imitation of what God's created, and he tempts God's people away from what's good, right, and true. And so, for what we, what we have to understand is that for everything that God creates, Satan comes up with a cheap imitation. Satan's work is always derivative of God's work, and that's, that's an interesting concept when you think about it, because, because uh, evil is not a concept that stands on its own apart from good. Most, most of the evil that exists in the world is derivative of things that are good and useful. Think about sex. Now that I have your attention, think about sex. Sex is perfectly good and holy between a husband and a wife. Sex is how husbands and wives create children and expand their families. The problem with sex is when it's misused and mistreated um, in, in ways where in, in, in ways where uh, we saw the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. And then, of course, we see another manifestation of how sex is misused and mistreated in the LGBT movement. Those movements and those agendas are all about people thinking that they have the right to misuse, misappropriate, and mistreat the good gift of sex that God gave to people. Think about the ability to kill. You've got to be able to kill. How else are you going to get the meat off those animals that you need in order to eat to survive? It's when the target of our killing becomes other people in a situation where it's not self-defense that it becomes an issue, which is why the sixth commandment is you shall not murder. What we need in John's vision in Revelation is what we need to see in John's vision in Revelation is how Babylon is not an idea, a concept, or a nation that stands on its own. It's an inversion of something that's good, true, and holy. That what was true of Babylon, that, that's what was true of Babylon even back in Genesis 11. Remember their goals. They wanted fame, they wanted to be known, and they wanted security. And what we see in Genesis 12 is that God promised all of those things to Abraham. So if God doesn't have a problem with fame, if God doesn't have a problem with being known, if God doesn't have a problem with security, if God doesn't have a problem with sex, and God doesn't have a problem with killing in and of itself, if God doesn't have a problem with any of these concepts or things, then what's wrong? What's wrong is when we mistreat and misappropriate those, those good gifts that God gave us into something that they were never intended to be. It's, it's, funny how, it's funny how we can take a good thing and make it into a God. 
And, what, and the way we do that, the way we take those good things and make them into idols and make them into gods is by, is by neglecting the God who gave us those good things. And so the difference between, between God promising fame, being known, and security to Abraham and, and what the people of Babel were wanting was that Nimrod, who was Babel's leader, was trying to pursue with the work of his hands what Abraham was freely promised by grace through faith. Think about that. Think about that one statement. Nimrod was trying to pursue with the work of his hands what only God was willing to give by grace through faith. Which is why Paul will later say in Romans 4.3 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So the difference between Nimrod and Abraham is Abraham believed God. He believed God. He didn't, he didn't try to pursue anything with the work of his hands until belief was established. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Nimrod didn't believe God. He thought he believed in himself. He believed in his own ability to grasp at the things that God was only promising to give by faith. And of course, that's the, that's the ongoing story between people who try to approach God by works and people who actually do approach him by faith. When God creates something that's good, wholesome, and true, Satan takes what God created and turns it into some off-brand imitation that is evil, crude, and false. Now to illustrate this, notice Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, 25-27, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, Christ has a bride. Christ has a bride that has been cleansed with his blood. It's, it's the church. Christ has a bride that's been cleansed by his blood, and his bride is pure and holy. His bride is without spot or wrinkle, now go look at the description of the woman that we just read about in Revelation 17. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Then verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and pearl and precious stones and pearls and having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And so, and so Christ has a bride. Well, what's the devil have? The devil's got a whore. By the way, I, I didn't plan at this. I didn't plan to preach on the great whore of Babylon on Mother's Day, so that's... <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to preach on a terrible father for Father's Day. I don't know. <laughs> and so God, Christ has a bride. The devil's got a whore. And notice how, notice how this woman in Revelation 17 is arrayed. Notice what she wears. Or notice her behavior. She commits fornication with the kings of the earth. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. And she gets drunk on the blood of the martyrs. So what's, what's all of that mean? Well, fornication is a pursuit of pleasure. Fornication is a pursuit of pleasure. Her, array, her, her apparel in purple and scarlet, those are pursuits of materialism. 
And being drunk on the blood of the martyrs is hatred for the truth and hatred for those who speak truth. What, what's our culture full of? It's full of a pursuit of pleasure, it's full of materialism, and it hates the truth. In verses 2 and 4, the word fornication appears three times in reference to this harlot, and it's clearly something we're supposed to take note of. And what the fornication of this woman represents is a pursuit of pleasure. And so here's the motto of our world, if you haven't been paying attention. Our world says, if it feels good, do it. If it sounds good, believe it. If it makes the chemicals swim, call it love. Right? That's the way our world operates. Our world can't make sound arguments for why they do what they do, believe what they believe, and love what they love, which is why they've come up with these cute slogans like, love is love, right? To try to explain their lifestyle. Well, love is love, okay? Air is air. Water is water. A banjo is a banjo, right? You're not telling me anything. You can't back up with a sound argument why, why you live the way you live short of it just feels good. It just feels right. It just feels like I should do it. Barnabas Piper in his book Hoping for Happiness, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's, it's how a Christian should view the term happiness. Um, Barnabas Piper, he said that when we commit, when he said when we follow our feelings, when we follow the if it feels good, we should do it culture, when we follow our feelings, we will be perpetually abandoning things God wants us to commit to because we hope for and expect the wrong things in the wrong timing from the wrong objects. It's that pursuit of pleasure in the wrong objects that's so appealing to the world. That's why verse 2 says that the kings of the earth commit fornication with her. They love the idea of living for and pursuing pleasure. And they even go as far as believing that they're wiser for doing so, which is why Romans 1 says that claiming to be wise, they became fools. The problem is that if all you live for is pleasure, then eventually the pleasure is going to stop. The way drug addicts describe their addiction is it's like chasing the dragon. They need to get higher and higher because their bodies are building up an immunity and an insensitivity to the drugs. And so the pleasure that comes with taking the drugs is getting harder to attain and harder to keep. And that's why people wind up ODing. And that principle doesn't just apply to substances, it applies to sin. The more you engage with sinful attitudes, ad actions, and practices, the less you seek God in faith and repentance and the harder your heart gets. That's why Hebrews 3.8 tells us, do not harden your hearts. And then in verse 13 it says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There are many people who sit in church pews every Sunday, and maybe there's some here this morning, I don't know. Maybe there's some here this morning who affirm Christ with their lips, but their hearts are far from him because their hearts have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so what happens is you just pursue pleasure all the time. You pursue what's convenient all the time, and your heart builds up hardness to the things of God. Eventually the pleasure runs out. And of course, let's just make one more point about how the woman is arrayed. Purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls. Verse 4. Revelation 17, 4. Notice what she's wearing. These are all status symbols of the culture. So by displaying herself in this way, she's making promises to all of the kings of the earth. She promises them beauty. She promises them economic prosperity. And she promises them pleasure. 
how this woman is arrayed represents materialism. Materialism is the need to have more and more material things, more money, more houses, more status, more power, more comfort, more convenience. And don't think for a minute that just because you're not as rich as some other people that you're exempt from being materialistic. John Ortberg reproduces a chart in his book um, called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And in it, he shows how in 1970, not many Americans thought things like a second car or a second TV were necessities. 11% of people thought air conditioning in their car was a necessity in 1970. Nowadays, you, you don't buy a car if it doesn't have air conditioning in it. All cars are made with air conditioning because we just got to a point in life where we couldn't live without it. Now, don't go home and say, the preacher said the air conditioning in my car is evil. I didn't say that. But we, we, get, we get accustomed to things. And in, in 2000, 23 years ago, in 2000, it was 65%. 65% of people said air conditioning in a car was a necessity. Now, I'm sure over the course of 23 years, that's gone up to nearly 100% by now. Ortberg says that in a Gallup poll, the respondents on average said 21% of Americans are rich. 21% of Americans are rich. But do you know how many people said they were rich? 0.5%. And this is what this is Ortberg's conclusion after looking at that study. Everybody thinks that they need one more thing to make themselves rich. And you know what the one thing is? More. Materialism is the constant idea that you need more, and that's limited to the rich and famous. And that's not limited to the rich and famous, right? We we need to be careful that what we we need to be careful that we haven't bought into this idea that more will make you happy because the desire for more comes from a place of wanting to be seen as more. We want people to value us and think we're worth something. We want to be seen driving a nice car, living in a nice house, wearing nice clothes. We get our value from how others define us and what, what defines and drives and what defines and drives that idea is the vehicle of materialism. And so the woman's fornication represents a pursuit of pleasure. A pursuit of pleasure is how people try to fulfill themselves on the inside. And the woman's apparel is a representation of materialism. And a pursuit of materialism is how people try to fulfill themselves from the outside because they live for the praises and applause of men. And anything that tries to buck up against those pursuits of pleasure and materialism, like the proclamation of the gospel, for example, is received with hatred and murderous vitriol because the gospel says that your worth and your value doesn't come from your pursuits or pleasure of materialism. Your worth and your value is found in your relationship to God in Christ. The gospel says that Jesus has come to set us free from our sins, which include the pursuits of materialism and pleasure, and to give us abundant life in himself. And you would think that that would be good news. Everyone would respond positively and the world would be a better place. But when something, when something, when someone has been drinking from a sewer all of their life, you're going to have a hard time convincing them that purified water tastes a lot better. <coughs> So what happens is that the world turns on Jesus and turns on his followers because they hate any kind of message that would try to draw them from their source of fulfillment, which is why what you see in verse 6 takes place. Notice verse 6 again in Revelation 17. I saw the woman 
drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Listen to me very carefully. As a believer, you cannot make friends with the world. You cannot take a neutral approach to the things of the world. Because if you're truly a believer, then the world doesn't take a neutral approach to you. The world hates you. This is what Jesus says in John chapter, 8, John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Notice that verse. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. The world hates you. The world wants to chew you up and spit you out. As a matter of fact, if we're using the language of Revelation 17.6, the world wants to get drunk on your blood. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's harsh. In a way, that's what John thought, too, because the end of verse 6, he says, When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. And so we're going to leave it right there for now, because there's a lot here, and we're going to finish it up next week. But it's clear that we have a choice. We choose Christ we reject the world and be part of an eternal kingdom. Or we can choose the world, reject Christ, and be a part of a world system that will find its end in a lake of fire. There is no in-between. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And I pray, Father, that you would use this word today to minister to our hearts and lives and that you would open up our minds so that we would be obedient to, to the call of your Spirit. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.